This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, Dante and Will Henson, the hermanos behind Los Hermanos Tequila. You'd think the brand is some outfit from Mexico, but nope, the brothers' business is based right here in Baltimore. In this special two-part series, we discuss their early lives, Dante's time in the military, how the distance between them never kept the brothers apart, and the beginning of their tequila business. For the last four to five years, it seems like we've been in a tequila era. Yeah, Duce had its day in the sun, but Patron was the drink of choice for a while. Then it became Don Julio, and if you really wanted to flex, you got a bottle of Azul. During the pandemic, when you should have stayed your ass home, you bought bottles of Casamigos to go to the 100% legal house party that ended up being a super spreader event. I didn't forget. A side note, the fact that Casamigos is now the fastest growing drink brand despite being available for 10 years proves it's a marathon, not a sprint. For brothers Dante and Will Henson, tequila was a way for them to connect with one another during the height of the pandemic. They'd sip and sample different brands, with brother Will even recommending new and niche brands to friends and family. Eventually, their love of the blue agave-based drink sparked their entrepreneurial journey, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. As we start the first of a two-episode series with Los Hermanos Tequila, we have to go back. Back to the late 70s and 80s, before Casamigos, when big brands dominated the alcohol industry. Dante and Will were just two boys growing up in Pasadena, Maryland. It was an idyllic upbringing during what Dante says was a simpler time. Everybody was like family, so it was always a good vibe. You know, even when things weren't the best of times, we made it the best of times. You know, we always had a community there that you could lean on and people relied on each other, so... It, it kind of brought that thing in us that, you know, wherever you go, you know, you always got a place to call home. You always got people that know you. So, yeah, growing up was great. And what was around the time period uh, that you grew up in? Because I don't know how old you are. Right. So As you see on the bottle, I was born in 1978. That's where uh, 1978 came from. But growing up in the 80s, you know, it was for people who were alive then. It was an easy time. I could be anywhere, like. Just me as a kid, like I had that freedom to kind of go. And even when I didn't have that freedom to go, I would take advantage and go anyway. <laughs> right. Like I was that adventurous type that keep my mind worried. But you could really get out there and go explore. And you really didn't have to worry because no matter where you went, you weren't too far from somebody that know you or know your parents. So, you know, you was always under a watchful eye. Y'all grew up in Freetown Village in Pasadena. Is that true? That's true. I know that there is some history surrounding uh, Freetown Village. Are you able to shed some light on that? Freetown was one of the first communities that African-Americans lived in in the Pasadena. Like, excuse me. So everywhere, everyone generally from that area, like, kind of grew up. And that was like the first, the Freetown gets its name from as like a free place. And so people from that Pasadena area, like, that was one of the first people where people actually owned land and people actually, you know, kind of grew up. Um, when, during the segregation times, it was still one of those places that where a lot of black people from Glen Burnie, Pasadena area lived. And, you know, later people kind of started going other places. But that was, you know, one of the historical places in the county. Do you feel like, given the time period that you were born in, do y'all still feel like you could feel or experience the remnants of life before the civil rights era? 
I think that would be a good question for my brother, as he's older and was out more of that time. Right? Um, um, I could kind of feel that when I lived in the city more, because out there it was rural. So it's times you're on rural roads, no street lights, and getting pulled over by the police or something like that for a simple traffic violation gave you that kind of feeling. <laughs> like, damn, we still here. You're going like, it, unlike in the city where it's well lit and the area is different. So it was it was a different experience out there, but, you know, it was the freedom we had to, to move around and see the um a lot of blacks had a lot of land, big single family homes. In contrast was kinda, you know, something we can compare that you ain't seen in a city like that. So it was no, different kind of feel back then for me coming up as a kid. So did your family live in uh, Baltimore City or, or, or the city before moving to Pasadena? No, we moved in uh, Pasadena. Then I think by the time middle school, I had moved to Baltimore with my mom and everything. But our aunts, uncles, grandmother, the entire family was there from here like to Annapolis. So we basically lived there. But I grew up in the city after from there to high school. I was in the city. I was in Baltimore. Where did you go to high school and what was that like? Um... I went to two high schools, actually. So I went to Glen Brandy High School and then ended up doing two years at uh, Walbrook High School before they closed it. And then I ended up finishing back in Glen Brandy. So it was a nice contrast to see, you know, in Glen Brandy, it was what I always grew up, what I knew. and But it was a culture shock when I came to Walbrook. I'm in a school that's like 99% black. And I was like, oh, like all of my teachers are black. Almost all the students were black. I can only remember like there was one Spanish teacher who wasn't black in the school. And so... That was really was a culture shock, and it was a lot of things that I did in Walbrook that I probably wouldn't have did in Glenbrandy. Like for instance, um, after football season, I decided to try wrestling. You know, just because it was a comfortable, safe space that I know I wouldn't have done. Because when I left Walbrook and I went back to Glenbrandy, you know, the wrestling coach remembered me. He was trying to recruit me, and I was like, "Oh, sir, I'm good." <laughs> like, yeah, no. But again, I played tennis at Walbrook. Right? Like, I know that's something I wouldn't have done in Glenbrandy. So. It's a, it was a different thing, but it gave me a lot of perspective when I came back. And can you talk about what you did after high school? Sure. So after high school, I took a year off. Um, literally, my cousin and I, we just partied for like a whole year. And then uh, 2000, I joined the Navy. Mm. I was in the Navy active duty from 2000 to 2009. What was that like? Because you joined a year before 9-11 and then you got out... Uh, on the financial crisis. Yeah. So, yeah, what was that like? <laughs> yeah, um, it was scary in the beginning because for me, uh, growing up here, like the furthest I've ever been from Baltimore at the time was Delaware and furthest south was uh, North Carolina. So I've only been up and down 95. So when I joined the Navy, my first duty station was the shipyard in Philly. Mm. Great. I'm happy. I'm coming home every, you know, every weekend. And then I came home one weekend and I wake up one morning to turn on the news at my grandmother's house and they were like an explosion went off at the Pentagon. That's random. And I will go back to sleep. Later, when I get back up, now they're talking about the World Trade Center. And I'm I'm all like, what? And so at this time, I had left my first duty station and I was transitioning to my second ship in Norfolk. And that ship had got deployed. So they were already gone. And I had to travel to Norfolk and then fly out to La Madalena. Italy to go meet them so like it was a crazy experience and my whole naval experience almost has been dealing with 9-11 and Operation Dawn Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom that was like the first half of my career it was crazy like again but I got to see a lot of things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise so you know it's 
you got to get it's a give and take. When it was time for you to discharge, was that a personal decision that you made? And was it like you were happy or were you just like, I'm just kind of ready to do something else? Um, actually, no. So the reason that I decided to join the Navy in the beginning, because I wanted the college fund, the nine, well, it was a, well, the GI Bill then. And at the time, I got accepted into Morgan State, and I was supposed to go to Morgan to major in English because I wanted to be a journalist. Um, when the time came to go to Morgan, you know, like they sent me all the letters. You know, I got financial aid. I got scholarships. But I didn't have anybody to help me navigate that process. Mm-hmm. And so I just let everything go. And so when the time came, you know, to join the Navy, I was like, okay, I can go to join the Navy. I can get this GI Bill. And then I'll have, you know, I'll be older so I can have more, you know, I'll have more experience and I can figure this thing out when I get back. And two years into Navy, I get married, I have a kid, you know, now we're like, what, 2004, it's time for me to get out when I'm ready to get out. I got a wife, I got a two-year-old, I got two car payments, like, yeah, I can't get out, <laughs> you know, all right, fine. And so the Navy, actually, because I was going to get out and I was going to go to the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. and the Navy said... The Coast Guard said if you – I was an E-4 then. Coast Guard said if you come in, you'll have to come in as an E-3, but you can get your E-4 back after boot camp. The Navy said if you re-enlist, we'll send you to shore duty for three years, and we'll make you an E-5. Well, that's the easy decision. I was going to say, it sounds like an easy decision to make. Easy decision. Took the E-5, went to Pensacola for three years, and I hated every bit of it. So, in my, you know, being from the East Coast, again, you know, all the time we've ever been to Florida, you're going to Orlando. You know, you think of Florida, you think Disney World, you think of Miami – so when the opportunity came to Pensacola, Florida, you know, my wife, me and my wife, we jumped on it like, great. Mind you now, I just want to remind people, this is 2004. This is pre-Google now, so <laughs> you don't really know, right? Like, people still searching on Yahoo at the time. Yeah, ask Jeeves. <laughs> ask Jeeves, right. <laughs> so, you know, we were like, Florida, cool. We're thinking, you know, it's going to be great. And we get down there, and for people who don't know, Pensacola is in the panhandle. Oh, Jesus. All of the TV stations, radio stations, is all Alabama stations. So Pensacola essentially is a suburb of Mobile. So we get down here, and this place is super rural, and we're like, oh, boy. I didn't have a problem in town, but a lot of my friends who I was stationed with who were Mexican really got a lot of racism, like blatant racism in town. And so for us, you know, it was like, this is where we're at. Even at work sometimes with the people that we were stationed with. You know, it was like a real good old boy network, so I absolutely hated it. And I was going to get out at the end of 2007, but, you know, I looked at my career overall. I was like, okay, I've been in this thing for seven years. Like, I haven't made any money. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I was just getting by, and I was like, no, I, I, I've been here too long not to make the money. So I was looking for a duty station that I could go and make some money before I get out. And lo and behold, I got an opportunity to go to Japan. Whoa. And so the deal was that, for at that time, if I if I went to Japan with my family, we would have to go for three years. But if I went unaccompanied, it was a two year tour. Okay, I can do two years standing on my head. Cool. What I did know when I took those orders was that at the squadron that we were with, and that air, air carry air wing was forward deployed, meaning on a normal state size um, with a carrier group, you'll deploy for six months, you'll be back for a year. You might do a little drills here and there, but you'll be back. There, we're deployed every two months. You come back for two months, you're gone for two months. And so the two years I was in Japan, I saw my wife and five-year-old son twice. Mm-hmm. And that was on Christmas on both times. 
And so, you know, like at the time you think before Google, before, honestly, before the iPod, right? Like it's hard to explain to a five-year-old why I'm not here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm like trying to explain how I'm literally on the other side of the world, buddy. But, you know, he, he couldn't comprehend that. And then, you know, like it was, it was a lot on my wife because for the majority of the time we've been married, I've been on sea duty, I've been deployed. And this was like a breaking point. And so when I asked the Navy, you know, they wanted me to do another year. Like I had to do another year in Japan. And I was like, no, this is not going to work. And so they was like, okay, well, you can reenlist and you can go somewhere else. Okay, great. So I was like, you know, let, let me go back to shore duty then since I did my two years. Well, the Navy changed the seashore rotation. So now you got to do three, right? So now you got to do three as shit. So, okay. So I can't go back to shore duty. So I'm in Japan. My wife's in uh, Tacoma, Washington at the time. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, give me a ship in San Diego. No. So give all right, can I get a ship in Coronado? No. Can I get a ship in Hawaii? No. So my career counselor says, watch this. Put an order in. Ship in Norfolk. So they, they approved that. I said, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> what? I've been there, done that, like, no. And so, that's on the other side of the, uh, the the nation. Other side, they don't care. I said, it would have been cheaper for them, obviously, to send me anywhere in California. But instead, they were sending me, either stay in Japan or they were sending back to Norfolk. And so that was my option, right? Like, choose the Navy or choose my family. And so every time, I choose my family. I said, fine. And my career counselor was like, are you crazy? Do you see what's going on out there? This is 2009. Mm-hmm. The whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I said, I'll figure it out. Right? Like, and luckily at that time when I was leaving, the post 9 11 GI Bill was just coming out, it was just getting approved. And for people who don't know, the post 9 11 GI Bill pays for your tuition in full. They also pay you a housing allowance every month based on where you're going to school. So for me, okay, that's a win. Right? Like, you're going to pay for my school and you're going to put money in my pocket. I'll figure the rest out. And yeah, and I left and never looked back. I'm sure that that is probably an all too common story with people who have uh, who've gone through the military system. There was a time, you know, long ago and far and away, I wanted to join the Navy and then it just didn't work out. And then I wanted to join the Air Force and I got into a car accident and broke my ankle. So I, I'm sure if my mom listens to this episode, she'll probably smile because I know that she didn't want me to go to the military. But, you know, she was in the military. My stepdad was in the military. I had a whole bunch of other uh, family members in the military. So it's probably where I um, where I got it from. Uh, while your brother is doing all of this, Will, for that like seven to eight year period, um, what was going on in your life? What were you doing? I was going to school in um, Dunbar High School. I was playing football, and um, the the dream was to be a football star. Like I was pretty good, you know, um, all American. And I was in the streets though because where I was at, being in the streets was cool to me. Like you know, my father wasn't around at the time. Just me and my mom. You know, I knew he was good, so I, I didn't have any kids, of course, at a young age. So. I, I was just doing what I want pretty much, you know, so I was working all jobs, but I was in the streets a lot. <laughs> like, that's where I lived, man. I love the guys who had the fast, the cars, the money, the girls, you know what I'm saying, traveling here and there. And um, as I got older now, you know, I just turned 50, I look around like, damn, you wasted a lot of time in the streets, man. Like, you know, there was a lot of time I could have been building everything, but um, I played semi-pro once I got out and um, for like two years for the um, – the Baltimore Bears, the Baltimore Christian Warriors at the time, my fault. And, um, you know, still trying to get that football itch out. You know, I was in, you know, like 24 years old or whatever, playing football and um, just traveling, man, you know, in and out, of, um, going to fight parties and this and that, you know, just being a guy with no responsibility, no kids, <laughs> you know, just yeah. living that kind of life. That's what, I, that's what I was doing. 
Uh, before we jump into uh, the entrepreneurship side of things for the both of you, uh, I just want to briefly talk a bit about your bond as brothers. Um, I'm one of three. I'm, I'm middle. I have a younger sister and then I have an older sister. But for the majority of my life, it's just been my sister and I. Can you talk about the uh, the relationship that y'all share and how while like you were still here in Maryland and you, you know, at, at certain points were on the other side of the globe, that distance was never an issue with you two? Yeah, I think it has to do with our family dynamic. Like, growing up, um, it was my mom and my brother and I. Like, that was the family unit. And so, like, we always, growing up, like, we we all had to rely on each other. And that's, you know, the way our family worked. And it was always the three of us. So it didn't matter, you know, where I was at, you know, where I was at in the world. You know, I'm always checking home, you know, to see everybody. And a few times, I remember one time we were stationed in Japan, and we had made the trip from Japan by boat all the way to San Diego, right? So we crossed the Pacific, come to San Diego. We're in San Diego for a week, and, you know, everybody's out here partying. I booked the flight, took leave, and came home to hang out with my brother and his kids, like, <laughs> right? Because, you know, for me, it was like, we got a chance to be in the States. Like, I'm out of here. Like, I'll see San Diego on the back end, but, you know, I got a chance to go home because no matter where I went, you know, it, it was always home, and it's like a thing that, you always want to have that connection. You always want to be there. And I think a lot of it had to do with, too, this is pre-social media time, right? Like, there was no social media then, so you really couldn't just jump on the phone and just FaceTime somebody. Like, you know, you had to go see people. And so that's what I think the thing that always kept me, you know, wanting to stay close to home and, and where everybody else was. Mm. It, it's interesting you mentioned that, like, without social media, you were forced to, you know, be in the same room with people and then, Social media connects us all electronically, but like we feel more lonely than ever. It's so weird how that works out. Uh, so let's now uh, start talking about um, Los Hermanos Tequila. And before we get started, uh, you mind if we we pour up a little bit? Okay, cool, cool. Let's, let's grab some. Beer. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we return, I continue my conversation with Will and Dante Henson of Los Hermanos Tequila. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, and my guests are Dante and Will Henson, founders of Los Hermanos Tequila. We took a small drink break during the interview. Their reposado was smooth and tasty. Properly spruced, we got back into it. So let's talk about entrepreneurship. Uh, as uh, the people will have heard, we just uh, took a little sip of uh, Los Hermanos Tequila. Is Los Hermanos Tequila uh, your first foray into entrepreneurship? Yep, absolutely. Why this? Why tequila? So many people would do like maybe clothes or, uh, you know, I interviewed somebody that's done um, like organic soaps and, and toothpaste and stuff like that. Why, why tequila? And also, is there a difference between liquor and spirits? Um, liquor and spirits the same thing. You know, people just call either one. Is there some historical significance? But yeah, even when they say spirits, they're referring to liquor. Can you tell us a story uh, um, about yeah. why you wanted to get into the business? So we stumbled onto the business. Going back to March of 2020, when the lockdown started, right? Like my brother was working like a week on, a week off. I was working from home full time, and so you know, sometimes he would call me like, "Hey, what you doing?" So nothing. He said. All right, I'm going to come down to the house. I'm like, sure, you know, come there. Because, again, if people remember 2020, right, it was cold. 
you can't go nowhere. Like some people even had to get permits to go to work. Like, I mean, it was just a whole thing. So he comes down to the house, he would bring a bottle of tequila and, you know, we would sit around to drink and, you know, share experiences and just enjoy each other's company. And then, so the next time he come, you know, my wife would go buy a bottle and then, okay, well, now it's my turn. So I would buy a bottle and we spent the early part of the spring really just trying a bunch of different tequila brands and, you know, understanding the difference between the Blancos, the Reposados, the Anejos, you know, and the difference between the different brands. And, you know, we're feeling like, okay, we know a little something about tequila. We're excited. My brother was sharing his experiences with his coworkers and his network and friends. And what we found was, like, people really couldn't relate to what we were saying. So he was really telling people, like, no, listen. People had all these misconceptions about what tequila was or what it does, and he was like, no, you got to try this. This is a really good brand. You know, try this one. This is good. This is at this price. And I, I definitely want to make sure I plug this. At the time, 2020, my brother was the only person I know who knew, who was on the Cosmigos. When we were talking to people about tequila back then, they knew 1800, they knew Patron, and they knew Jose Cuervo. He was one of the first, if not the first person in the city that was on the Cosmigos. Okay. Again, my brother, back 2020, was on Espelon. People here weren't drinking Espelon like that back then, right? And so he's telling people, go try this brand, go get this brand, and people will go get it. Like, And, it's, and I mean, not like at your local store. Like People will go out of their way to go find these brands that they never heard of based on his recommendation. Will the trendsetter. Right. And I and, and he's doing it, and I'm seeing it. He's coming back telling the stories. Like, people will go out, find these tequilas. They would take pictures and send it back to him. Right? And, I was, and I'm watching this plan over weeks. And I was just like, I had an epiphany. I said, hold on, bro. I said, how many cases you sold for these people? <laughs> like, you ain't got a T-shirt or nothing. I'm like, you know, we probably could start our own brand and we probably could do something. And, you know, he kind of was like, Hell yeah, yeah, what would you like? And I'm like, no, like, I'm serious. Like, I, I can see you have a good nose for tequila. You definitely have the influence over the people. I was like, you know, we can probably figure this thing out. Like, people are doing it, so it, it, it can be figured out. So we just got to do that work. And, you know, we really just like, you know, it was kind of like, okay, and okay, you know, laughing and drinking. But a couple of days had went by and, and this thought still stuck with me. And I said, you know what, let me not let a good idea, a good opportunity get past us because we didn't take it seriously. And so I started looking into it. And at the time, I didn't know anything about tequila other than what we had drunk. Like, that was my whole experience. So, again, in my ignorance, I'm calling distilleries around the states, asking them what they're taking on small brands. And, of course, again, people remember 2020, people fighting over toilet paper hand sanitizer, right? (laughs) Like, all the distilleries that I called were like, no, we're not taking on brands. We switched our equipment over to make hand sanitizer. And I said, all right, fine. And I keep calling, but I wasn't giving up. I called a guy in Jacksonville, mm-hmm. Jacksonville, Florida, and I asked him, you know, were you taking on small brands? And the guy says, yeah, I can take you and your brother on as a brand, but you got to go to Mexico to get the juice. And my, I didn't say this to him, but in my mind, I'm thinking, if I got to go to get the juice, what I need you for? <laughs> hey, so I was like, all right, thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Quick. Now, I get on Google, right? I'm Googling everything I can find out about tequila, Mexico, distilleries, everything. Until I felt I was comfortable enough to reach out and have a conversation. And I can ask intelligent questions. And so I started reaching out to distilleries and a couple of them got back to me. And at first, like, you know, again, I'm new. I didn't really understand, you know, what they were saying. And so, you know, I, I'm Googling the terms of what, they, what they're saying, you know, the minimums and everything. And so I figured out what they were. Okay. And then, you know, the story that we partnered with came back to us. They said, yeah, we can take you guys on as a brand. The one that we chose were 
family owned. Like that was the big thing for me. Like, okay, we're family owned, they're family owned. We probably can get that little bit of hand holding that we're gonna need in the beginning. Mm-hmm. They were the most award winning distillery in Mexico. So I was like, okay, that's a good sign. So, you know, we set up a call and, you know, I talked to God about what we were doing, what we want to do. And this absolutely, we can help you. And now I'm excited. We're, this is maybe late April. Man, and my family, we're out in Ocean City on a boardwalk, and I walk away from the family, and I call my bro. I said, bro, we can do this. And he's like, all right, bro, yeah, I'm with you. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, you're not understanding. I said, I'm telling you, we can do this. I just got off the phone with the distillery. Like, we can do this. And so, like, that's how we got into the business. Wow. That is, uh, that's an amazing story. Well, so when you walked away from your family to make the phone call, did your wife not know what you were doing at the time? No, she had no idea. She's looking at me like, who are you calling? <laughs> right? Like, but I'm like, just give me a minute. Like, I'm too excited to even take the time to explain it to you. I got to get him on the phone right now. Like, right. I was that excited, you know, because I, I just got off the phone. Because, again, the thing for me that was cool was that no one, we, we didn't know anyone in the spirit business. Right? Like, at the time, we didn't know any other brand owners, white or black, or any, any anything else. So, for us, it was like, we got opportunity here to do something that we know could be big if we do it right. And two, something that no one else we know ever done. So, I was like, that's what excited me about it in, in the beginning. was like, just that opportunity to do something new and novel. Because, again, right, like, we know a lot of barbers. We know a lot of beauticians. We know a lot of people who are bakers. But we don't know a lot of people in the other side of products, right? Like, we don't know a lot of shoe manufacturers. Like, you don't know a lot of soda manufacturers. Like, now you start to see all these things pop up. But, and you know, pre-COVID, we didn't see a lot of those people. So, for us to do something kind of novel, which I don't know how novel it is now because you see how many business sprung up out of 2020. But mm-hmm. at the time for us, you know, it was just that thing. It was like, we really had a chance to do something novel. And, you know, we seized the opportunity. That was Dante and Will Henson of Los Hermanos Tequila, and this is just part one of the two-part interview series with the brothers. Part two will be released in two weeks, so as always, stay tuned.